Today on Walk in Truth, Pastor Michael's in the book of Mark, chapter 6, verse 53, with a message titled, From the Inside Out. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. From the inside out is the text. Let's go to Matthew 23. We're going to watch that Jesus was healing scores and scores of people once again. And he had many confrontations with the religious elite of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees is what you see often in your Bible. These were the separated ones, literally. The Pharisees separated themselves from normal societal life to be the religious elite of the day. Some of them served on the ruling council in Jerusalem. They were the religious experts of the day. And they were very concerned about doctrinal purity and personal purity. But along the way, something had happened to these men. Not every one of them, but most of them. It became more about the outside than it, than it was about the inside. It became more about the show than it was about the heart. And there's always a dangerous thing for us as human beings that we begin to mail in our Christianity. We begin to do things more for the outside than we really concern ourselves with the inside. It's very easy to play a role. It's very easy to be an actor, to turn on the charm and then turn it off. It's really been said that character is really determined by what you do when no one else is watching. Those are some of our biggest struggles, I would say. Who do you truly want to be in your life? Who do you want to serve? Who is your true Lord when no one is watching? That's the real acid test. The acid test is not if you can fool the people some of the time. The question is, who do you love and who do you serve? Every one of us has to wrestle with that. We don't do it perfectly. None of us do, but it is about the heart. And when Jesus was confronting the religious leaders, this is um, Matthew 23. Look at verse 25 with me. He said, he pronounces a woe. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, Matthew 23, 25. But inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Would you all mark that verse? There's an order there that Jesus reveals to the religious elite of his day. He says, look, you guys worry about polishing the outside. I'm telling you, you better take a look at the inside. You better look at your heart first because what comes out of the heart is what really matters and that flows out of the life. What we tend to do as people is we want to clean the outside instead of paying attention more to the inside. I heard Alistair Begg say recently that we spend a lot of time on our appearance. We do our hair. We want to look good. I'm right with you. However, he said we should pay more attention to the things on the inside because the things on the inside are the things that can kill you. If those parts aren't working right, you're in trouble. 
We tend to focus on the outside. We want to look good to people. We want to impress people. But Jesus looked into people's hearts. In fact, he could see right through people. He was one of those people, if you've ever known somebody like this, who could look into your soul. He knew what was going on. And he said, look, here's the order. First, take care of the inside. Then the outside will follow. Let me ask you, how are you doing in that particular area? Now, back to Mark chapter 6. If you turn with me, Mark 6, we'll pick up the account where we've left off as we continue to go through the book of Mark. And I want to just mention to you as we focus on the heart, the Bible has a lot of interesting things to say about the human heart. It says that God has put eternity into man's heart, Ecclesiastes 3.11. Romans 2.15 says the work of the law is written on their hearts. Joshua 2.11, people describe their hearts as melting, Luke 24, 32, the man on the road to Emmaus said, our hearts were burning within us as Jesus spoke to them. Romans 5, 5 says, God's love is poured out within our hearts, believers' hearts, through the Holy Spirit. And 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 says, God examines our hearts. In the last 24 hours when Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross, John 14, 1, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. It's possible that our hearts can be heavy. Our hearts can be troubled. And Jesus gives us the cure for heart trouble. But there's an intriguing verse here in Mark 6, 52. This is where we left off last time. And it, it's regarding the apostles. Mark 6, 52, it says that they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children, but their heart was hardened. The men that had spent time with Jesus, the men that had watched miracle after miracle, the men that had now become vessels to be used by God to cast out demons and heal the sick and preach the gospel, Jesus identified something in them. Their hearts were hardened. The, the Greek word here is calloused. Is that you? Is that me? Life can sometimes do that to us. But how could it be said of these 12 men who had this life-changing experience of of seeing God in action? What had happened to them along the way? You know, people often say, well, the heart will change if you can simply just see a miracle. Then I'll believe. Oh, yeah? These guys saw thousands of miracles. And yet the Bible describes their hearts as being hard. And Jesus sent them into a storm. Why? I believe the storm was for softening purposes. And they rode against the the waves that were contrary eight to 10 hours in all likelihood. And then Jesus came to them walking on the sea. They were exhausted, poured out, done, finished. That may describe some of you. And then he came. And the Bible says he intended to pass them by. An interesting verse, but the verse can mean that he was coming near, and maybe the essence of it is he wanted them to call upon him. And he began as they were troubled and they thought they had seen a ghost. He said, I am. Don't be afraid. It is I, ego in me. Some scholars believe he was proclaiming the name of the Lord, much like God did uh, up on Sinai for Moses. You'll see the back parts of my glory. Don't be afraid. It's me. It is I. And then Peter stepped out in faith, sunk. They got back into the boat. Jesus calmed the storm. Immediately, John 6 says they were at their destination. Now it's time for more ministry. 
But what do you do with an experience like that? Do you think your heart would have softened a little bit? Do you think you would have said, you know what, here we were rowing, rowing, rowing against the the waves, and here he is, he calms the storm once again. Matthew 14 tells us that when that was all done, they worshiped him in the boat, and they said, surely you are the son of God. Sometimes storms are intended to reshape our hearts. Sometimes they're intended to soften our hardened hearts. It's not like we all invite storms into our lives or enjoy storms. I hear Stephanie up here talking, and I'm like, wow, (laughs) that's pretty cool. She wants to be stretched. She wants to be challenged. And that's what God wants to do in your life and mine. He doesn't want you just to be sitting in the bleachers or on the bench. He wants you to get into the game. And there's going to be some stretching time when that happens, but that stretching is good. And so here we go. This is uh, just a few other verses on the heart. Son of man, take all my words into your heart, Ezekiel 3.10. Jeremiah 4.14 says, wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved, Jeremiah 4.14. Washing is going to be a big part of this, ceremonial cleanness, and Jeremiah 4.14 says, wash your heart. Remember, when we're talking about the heart, we're not talking about your physical organ, as miraculous as that is. In Jewish thought, the heart, the Hebrew word is lev. If you're interested, just write down L-E-V, lev. Transliterated into English, the word in the Hebrew picture language means that which controls the inside or the house. One writer says the heart is the center of human personality, which determines a man's entire action and inaction. The Bible says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues or the springs of life, Proverbs 4.23. The heart is the source of all spiritual and moral conduct. It's the place from which you make decisions. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is where God wants to work, in the core of who you are. That's what your heart is. And the Bible says, wash your heart. David prayed in Psalm 51, create In me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In Psalm 139, verse 23, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Psalm 139, 23, and 24. In Philemon 20, Paul writes, Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Philemon, verse 20. Your heart can be refreshed. Your heart, you can say to God, create in me a clean heart, reshape my heart. But these are dangerous prayers. Because when you ask God to have a searchlight go into your heart, you're asking a major thing. You're saying, Lord, I don't want to just look good on the outside. I want you to search the inside. And when you start praying like that, you're going to start discovering that your heart's going to change. Because God's going to start to do some surgery on the inside. This is what was happening to the apostles as they went along with Jesus. He was working on their hearts. Now, they had crossed over, Mark 6, 53, and they came to the land at Gennesaret. They moored to the shore, Mark 6, 54. And when they had come out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, that's Jesus, and ran about that that whole country and began to carry about on their pallets those who were sick to the place that they heard he was. Here's a sweeping statement in Mark's gospel. And wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, 
they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and entreating him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. Left and right, he would go into villages and different places and people saw him and heard him and they were laying the sick one after the other. And I don't know how many people Jesus healed in his earthly ministry, but by this point, just in Mark's gospel, it's got to be thousands upon thousands of people. But physical healing is one thing. Spiritual healing is quite another. And I think that everybody who Jesus touched, that was his intention. His intention was to get to the soul. But people were desperate for healing, and one after the other, they came, and he would preach the message, and he would touch people, and he had compassion on the multitudes. Do you want to be able to defend your faith, what you believe in, why you believe it? We've tackled subjects like Jehovah's Witnesses, the origins of Christmas. In honor of the 500th year of the Reformation, we did a two-part message on sola scriptura. Is the Bible alone sufficient? Is it our highest authority? Scientology, intriguing topics that are available on the Walk in Truth store at walkintruth.com. There'll be more to come, more exciting things to come. Some years ago, I heard a program on Focus on the Family when James Dawson was still the president. And they interviewed a pastor who was a a preacher. I think he was a preacher in the South. And he got this weird infection and it went into his vocal cords and he lost his voice. And as a pastor, that's a terrible thing to have happen to you. And he had this condition for three years and he, he described the condition in this way. He said it felt like someone was squeezing his windpipe when he tried to talk. So he went to doctor after doctor after doctor, and they were trying to figure out what was going on with his vocal cords. And all they could say was they, they believed that somehow this infection got into his vocal cords and damaged them or did something to his voice. And so he had to resign as a pastor. He didn't believe the congregation, you know, even though they were trying to tell him to stay, he didn't believe it was fair to them. And he wrestled with these big questions. Oh, God, why? I'm a pastor. My voice is absolutely essential to what I do. And you've allowed my voice to be taken from me. What are you doing? And he had all these terrible you know, uh, struggles and deep questions. His name is Pastor Dwayne Miller. He was asked to speak at a Sunday school uh, about three years later. This was about 1993. The problem with his voice happened in 1990. And the Sunday school class wanted him to teach. He was a very good Bible teacher. He said, you guys don't want me to come. All I can do is croak out the message, right? So this was the only Sunday school in this church where they actually recorded it uh, on audio cassette. And when he spoke, if you squeeze your windpipe, he, he spoke like this. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. That's how he spoke. So he got as close to the microphone as he could, and he was speaking from Isaiah 53, and in this, it was a Baptist congregation, they had an annual teaching calendar, so whatever was on the calendar, that's what the pastor would teach in this adult Sunday school. So it happened to be that when he came, he was teaching from Isaiah 53, and he was trying to make the case that even though in Isaiah 53, it's speaking of the atonement and God can heal, he was arguing that God is sovereign in healing. The atonement does not guarantee physical healing. Some of our friends in the word faith movement want to say that whenever you pray, healing is guaranteed in the atonement. No, it's not. Ultimate healing is guaranteed in the atonement. If you know Jesus, your soul is saved. That's the ultimate healing. But physical healing is not guaranteed in the atonement. And he's squeaking this out. Okay, guys, this is what the Bible teaches. 
It's not guaranteed that you're going to be healed. So he, he turns to Psalm 103 and he begins to read just as a parallel passage about that God heals all our diseases. He's reading through this psalm. And as he's reading through this psalm, something miraculous happens. His voice, after three years of croaking out words, begins to be restored in the middle of reading Psalm 103. It's captured on an audio, and you can uh, Google this guy's name. If you want, write it down and go and look it up. Just look up Family Life, fam, uh, Family Talk, and look up Pastor Dwayne Miller. You can hear the seven-minute audio tape where God heals him in the middle of him saying that God is sovereign, and he decides who gets healed. And his voice is fully restored, and his voice is still fully restored to this day. Wow, 13 years later. I mean, I, I was listening in my car a couple of days ago to the pastor talk, and this hits home for me. I've had some struggles with my voice from time to time, and I know what it means to want to have a strong, booming voice for the Lord. And as this pastor told this story, I began to cry in my car. Can you imagine being a person who saw things like that happen day in and day out? Would it become routine? That's what the apostles saw. They saw him do stuff like that, it seems like multiple times a day. And yet the Bible describes their hearts as what? Still hard? Doesn't that tell you something about our humanness? Doesn't that tell you something about we could have all these incredible things happen and yet somehow still be stubborn? impenetrable. You need to show me something else, God. Why are we so lacking in faith? Jesus said that many times to the apostles. Where is your faith? Well, with all that was going on, we uh, move into Matthew, excuse me, Mark 7, verse 1. It says, and the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem. So now here's a uh, an official delegation from the holy city where all the big schools and eminent scholars were. And while all the people gathered around Jesus to hear him and be healed, this group, this official party, probably sent by the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, they came and they circled Jesus almost like a, a pack of angry wolves on a victim. And they encircled him and they're going to begin to press him on some questions. We're about to have what we would call a theological debate. They carried all the ecclesiastical weight of the big wigs, the big guns from Jerusalem, and they had come to question Jesus and in their minds put him in his place. And they had seen, verse 2, Mark 7, some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees, verse 3, and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands Thus observing, note this in your Bible, the traditions, plural, of the elders. The idea of washing here is a form of the word baptizo, where we get the idea of baptism. And the tradition of the elders moved through time, and originally in the books of Exodus, and I believe it's somewhere else in the Old Testament, they, the priests were involved in ceremonial washing. And that, that was to prepare them to go into the presence of God and that kind of thing. Well, they took this idea of priestly washing and it spilled over to the people. And the tradition of the elders became rabbinic tradition. When I say that, I mean rabbis. Different rabbis would say this about this subject and it filled a book ultimately called the Mishnah. 
And they devoted some 186 pages to ceremonial washing. <laughs> Get that? Can you imagine that? And they had a certain way that they would wash their hands, and they, they had to use a certain amount of water. It had to be one and a half eggshells worth. And they would wash their hands, and they let the water run down and kind of run down their wrists. And they had to be careful to make fists and let it fall off, because if it ran back down their fingers, then they were defiled again. Some of the rabbis taught that when you went to sleep at night, a demon with a weird-sounding name got onto your hands at night. And so if you woke up in the morning and you had your breakfast and you didn't ceremonially clean, now I'm not talking, I know some of you guys are germaphobes. How many of you are germaphobes? Raise your hand. How many of you don't want to admit it? All right, so you go, you know, my mother's like this. My mother has impressed this upon me. It's dirty, she wipes things down, phones and everything. Door handles. So I've picked up some of this now. You know, how many of you, you leave the restroom and you take the little thing, you know, the little towel, use that on the door, look around, <laughs> make sure nobody thinks you're a total freak. But that's not what we're talking about here. You should wash your hands. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Isn't, is that a Bible verse? No. But anyway, but I still think it's true. <laughs> You should wash your hands, but that's not what this is about. This was not about washing your hands, you know, with a little soap and doing the ABC song so you've done it long enough, okay? This was about being ceremonially clean. And so they had all these rules and regulations. In fact, verse four says, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things, Mark speaking now, or at least Peter's thoughts are behind Mark's gospel, which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And they had this whole regiment. In fact, the Mishnah has uh, 35 pages devoted to the washing of vessels and daily implements. If you're wondering about the Mishnah, it's just a simp simply a collection of Jewish oral tradition from the rabbis that was then put into a book. And so they, they followed this. And the tradition of the elders became so important to the religious elite that it began to be elevated above the word of God. This happened in denominations. It's happened in some world religions where all of a sudden you start to interact with people and you find out what they believe and you start to press them on what they believe and they can't find a Bible verse to support what they believe, but they say the church teaches this. And so now, if you show them a Bible verse that says the opposite of what that church may teach, there's a bit of a dilemma. And here's what the dilemma is. I think it's obvious. Which one are you gonna believe? If the tradition of the elders is contradictory to the word of God, which word will you trust? That's why the Bible has to become your final authority in faith and practice. That was the cry of the Reformation. That's the cry of the Protestant Reformation. The cry of, hopefully, evangelicalism is to let the Bible decide how you're going to live and what you're going to do. And so this is what they did. In fact, some scholars believe that when you have the ideas of washings here and cleansing themselves in verses 3 and 4, it has more to do than just washing your hands the right way. It has to do with even taking a bath. 
So you can imagine that people who were this meticulous about washing, I'm sure that they had the microscope on many other people. And it became now just about all the Jewish people had to do this now, just not the religious elite, everybody. So the religious elite came from Jerusalem. They saw the disciples not doing it the right way, and this was their focus. Never mind that thousands of people are getting healed. Never mind that it's clear that Jesus is the Messiah. No one spoke like he did. No one could do the works that he did. Never mind that stuff. You guys aren't cleansing yourselves the right way. Now, I don't want to put them down and go be too harsh on these guys because even in the Maccabean period, between the two testaments, there were good Jewish men who died uh, because they did not want to, for example, eat swine's flesh. And they died at the hands of some terrible men. I'm not mocking everything they believed, but what I am saying is that they took it too far. They took it to an unbiblical extreme. And all of a sudden, people were trapped in this legalism that wasn't even from God. And here they come. Traditions are a funny thing. Bayer Corporation stopped putting the cotton wads in their genuine bear bottles. The company realized the aspirin would hold up just fine without the maddening white clumps which it had included in their bottles since about 1914. You ever had a headache and tried to get into that bottle and you're like, what in the world? Why do they stuff all the stuff in there? We as people tend to work from the outside in instead of the inside out. We pay attention to our hair. Hopefully you have some to pay attention to. <laughs> we pay attention to how we look. We like to work out. We want to be in shape. There's all kinds of New Year's resolutions that happen this time of year, right? And you start, you know, promising, hey, man, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to get in the best shape of my life. But inevitably, what comes at you is life and cookies and cake and ice cream and frozen yogurt and whether or not you will stay committed to what uh, you made this resolution, you know, uh, are, are you going to stay committed and how long? And look, most of us who make resolutions don't keep them because they're dependent on us. And normally they have to do, sadly, at least a lot of resolutions have to do more about the outside than the inside. So how about this year, you change it up and you make a resolution starting with the inside. And you say, well, what, what might that look like? Well, how about you make a commitment to reading your Bible every day? How about you make a commitment to increasing your prayer life? How about you make a commitment that you don't want a week to go by without sharing your faith? How about you make a commitment that instead of going to church just when you're able, you have made a commitment as one of the pillar things of your life, your marriage, your family, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we're going to be in church because it's who we are and it's what we do. And if we're sick on an, or on vacation or something comes up, of course, we understand that. But the normal mode of our family life, and guys, I want to speak to you right now. You need to make this decision for your family. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're going to build our life around the things of the Lord. Those are the kinds of things that have to do with the inside your spiritual life, your your commitment to God, and then the outside will follow. Should we want to be in shape? Of course. Should we try to stay in shape and eat, eat right? Yes. But don't substitute or don't put first the outside 
take care of the inside first. Take care of your heart before God. Make sure your spiritual life is on track and the rest will follow. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message in its entirety, or if you'd like to visit our church here in Corona, California, visit our website, walkintruth.com.